still kind of in my mind thinking about the visualization last week of the picture of God the Father and, and the, the little puffy cloud above with him, the thoughts of God's are from the Spirit of God. And then to see in my mind that little stick figure of how God says, and I have given you my spirit, and therefore then, little puffy cloud, we therefore have the mind of Christ. And I cannot tell you how profound that has really been uh, kind of impressed upon me throughout the last couple of weeks since it, God gave it to me. And it, was, it really was not a um, spectacular revelation because it's right there in that verse 11 and 12, right, of, of chapter 2. But yet I was profoundly uh, impressed by it when I took the time to draw that visualization. And the... Um, the added benefit of having something like that on your heart and on your mind on a regular basis, particularly when you're doing God's word, is this great joy and delight of knowing that you really, you really have the, the mind of Christ. I mean, it's not just something that you say, it's a real reality in your life. And um, as I did my homework this last week, now we had two chapters to get through, which is a tremendous amount of work. Um, I pray, though, that knowing that the Lord is going to bring to your hearts and minds the things that are important for you to know, that that will be something that will bring you a great deal of peace and delight in it. And one of the things I have heard people say before, and they actually have said it of me, and I feel really bad, but you know that sometimes when we go through precept classes, it feels like you're drinking out of a fire hydrant, right? Particularly for new students in this method of study, because there is so much information that you're trying to take in, and you feel a little overwhelmed by just learning the, the tools of it. But I pray that you will not feel like you're drowning in it, but Father, that you, but really that you're just being bathed in it. That it's that it's going to be something that is watering your life, right? And that as we've looked at the planters and the waterers, you know, we want to be the ones who are being watered by God's word, and that from it we will draw what we need, and that we we b believe and trust in the faithfulness of God to show us what we need to know, and the rest of it we're we're gonna just let it sit for now if we have to. You can only take in as much as you can take in. You're only ready to receive what you're ready to receive. But God's word is one of those uh, supernatural writings. It's a supernatural, divinely inspired writing that can meet the heart of each one, right? Wherever you are, at whatever stage you are. And by that, I, I think what we're just going to have to do this morning is step into where we started this week and try to tackle as much as we can. Let's go back and talk about, to, to again set context, talk about the major theme that's going on in this book. So what's going on in 1 Corinthians? Why is this letter been written? Thank you, Lisa. I love it. She sh sh Johnny on the spot. She shows us she's hardly unpacked, and she's, <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> okay, so it's divisions and, and, and quarrels amongst the people. And so what I think is probably the most significant contrast that goes on, and that's in verse chapter 1, verse 10, is where he's, he introduces the facts that there are quarrels and divisions, and then what is his solution? be of the same mind. Now, 
the first time I did my homework on that, I kind of skirted over uh, be made complete, right? And I went straight on to be in the same mind and in the same judgment. But how about the, the part that says to be made complete? Why is that such a profound thing now that we've done our inductive uh, word studies on that? What does that word complete mean, to be made complete? Okay, ma mature, all right. What does the word division mean by definition? To be rent. And that's a word, some people are like, what is that funky word? Because that's a weird word that we don't use very much. But to be rent, I always think of, because w we like to play with fabric. You know, you take a piece of fabric and you can tear it in half, right? To get it on straight of grain. We used to do that in the olden days. I don't think they do it quite so much anymore. Everybody's like, no, that's old school. But I can tell you in Turkey it was important because things were not always on straight of grain. <laughs> so you'd, you'd rinse your fabric in half. So that's the word division, to be rent. Now, how does that apply to what we're looking at here with this congregation? That is, in fact, how they are. It's almost as if God, um, they were taking God's church and they're tearing it into pieces and they're saying, here's this one, here's this one, and here's this one. And so they've been rent, right? That's the divisions and, and, would, <clears throat> excuse me, and the quarrels that are going on amongst them. So now the, co the, the contrasting word to the word division is the word be made complete. The word complete then means to put back together what was rent. I think that's very interesting because when I looked that word up, it actually used those exact words. It didn't just say put something back together. It says, it says repair what was rent. So it is literally a contrast to the divisions. So in that then, I have gone to, to make a decision for myself about my my. Um, major theme for the book to bounce it off of that particular thing because it seems to me like everything else that we're going to be looking at throughout the rest of these chapters all falls back to this problem of the fact that they have been rent. And now uh, beneath that there is other issues. What caused them to go to this place of being rent? What have we seen so far that shows us systemically what's been the problem? Immature. They are immature. As a matter of fact, you know, it's like somebody call, coming in and saying, you big babies. And you've been there a long time. As, but, you know, I only gave you milk right, when I was with you the first time. But here I am back and uh, now all these years later and what's going on you are still on milk now does that speak to anybody's at all does that speak to your heart at all do you can you think back in your walk with god when you have seen yourself being that baby just sitting happy to be right where you are just happy that you're saved and that's all very good right but is that sufficient for the child of God who wants to really honor the Lord? What is Paul's attitude toward the fact that they have been infants? I think they're just not happy. <laughs> In chapter 3, he, he says, um, I give you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not even able to receive it. Indeed, even now you are not yet able. That's kind of like saying, like, you know what, 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 what's going on here? 
How come? Why are you still not able to drink milk? Um, I've heard some sermons online about this where these pastors have gone in and they've kind of gone into a great deal of uh, explanation about, you know, you have a little child, you bring him home, you put him in a crib, you know. But how would you feel if 20 years later you were still walking into that nursery and your child is still laying in that crib? And you're still handing them bottles and you're still changing their diapers and they're still only saying mama and daddy and bottle. And if they're only able to communicate with you on the on the infancy level and they're still still not capable of receiving real adult food, but they're still requiring milk. And he says the imagery in that is really strong. In this book, this week in particular, did you notice how much metaphor is going on? List some of the metaphors just randomly. They don't have to be in order. Just what are some of the metaphors that you've looked at? And, and how much can you actually, if you stop to think about just, you are God's field, just throw that one out there, for instance. Can you stop and go, wow, especially if you have ever done any kind of farming and you've ever been in, in that kind of a lifestyle, how much is there to that statement, you are God's field? They say a picture is worth a million words, right, or a thousand words. Is that, is that absolutely what has happened in this? So... Um, realistically then, about how many kinds of imageries have we seen in here? Did anybody stop to count them up when she asked that question? Just, it doesn't have to be accurate, just close. 11, okay, 11, about 11, 12, 13, somewhere in there, right? Quite a few. And so think about that. If each one of those imageries has a thousand words behind it, can you imagine the depths that we could actually take the study in this particular area to? We could spend weeks and weeks and weeks on this. You could go in and spend a lot of time looking at, for instance, um, the kinds of, of um, um, materials that are used. I've got to get my Bible up here. I've got the wrong book up. Sorry. I'm going to do a switcheroo here. Hold on. Every time I look down for it, it's over in the wrong place. <laughs> right thank you the press so all so these these articles that were used in the in the work of god and so if you look at each one of those what kind of implications are being suggested there about the possibilities in the work that you do for god okay Okay. Okay. Or they could be, in, I mean, like wood can be used, right? Wood, hay. So, but what is the defining factor in the imagery in that? The fire. <laughs> because the, the, the imagery in it is that there's going to be a fire that's going to test it, right? And when is that testing going to take place? In the day, each man's will become evident, for the day will show it, because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. So the, um, the imagery has a thousand words. If you stop to examine the, the qualities of gold, silver, and 
precious stones, how those can endure through fire. You could probably go in and do a lot of research on that and, and spend a lot of time, too, even looking at, through history, archaeological digs, what has lasted through the generations, what is it that we still have. If you go to places like Ephesus or, or Greece or any of those places, they have all these beautiful um, uh, ruins, but the main thing that's maintained itself is the stone, right? The, the precious stones or the, the marble columns and so forth. So the idea of endurance, if you just spend some time on that right there, how does that affect what you think about the works that you are doing then? Oh. Which do you, actually which do you think it is? Well, what is the what is the outcome of the fire and and what is the result of of once the works go through the fire? Okay, that kind of addresses both sides, though. Regardless of what material you're using, they all go through the fire, and regardless of what the outcome of that fire is to those two uh, categories of, of uh, work, of uh, products, or whatever you want to call these, um, you are, you're going to be saved. Because the, what does that tell you, then, about the subject matter here? Is this a subject matter about salvation? No, that is probably the most profound thing you can get out of this is, number one, he's not talking at all about your salvation. This is not about salvation. This is about works of faith, right? I always think of that uh, second, uh, or, um, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, and that verse 10 is always real significant. Someone look that up real quick because I think that one kind of plays in right now. It just came to my mind, and I didn't write it down, so I don't have it to read. Sorry. Right. Okay, exactly. And so what, what kind of things do you think that might be? What would not make it? And in the implications of what he's trying to correct in them here and in what he's saying about the outcome of it, the outcome of it is reward, correct? And the, the other side of it is he's coming at it, he's addressing a problem that's going on in this church, correct? And so what is it that he's saying then about works of the body of Christ and the future of them? Is it about specifically somebody who would does get saved or somebody who doesn't get saved or is it something more than that? They're not engaging with life in God at all. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so who's got that second or that um, Ephesians 2 verse? I keep wanting to say Second Timothy. Ephesians 2. Thank you, Susan. Okay, go back to 8, 9, and 10. Do the whole th all three of them now. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. 
For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Wow. So now, does that verse kind of address what we're looking at here? Do you, do you think that's a good fit for what we're looking at here? What, so I think what, it, what Ephesians 2 does for us is it's, it states very clearly that your salvation is by grace. And it has nothing to do with your works, right? But you were saved, and now that you're saved, what are you supposed to do? Good works. And by the way, they're not just any old good works. They're good works which were prepared for you ahead of time to do. These are things that God intends for us to walk in. The whole book of Ephesians is about that. You have been blessed in him to walk in him. It has a double theme in that book. And so if and on the one hand, as you're re reading through Ephesians, you can keep seeing how all the good things that God has done for you, how he's blessed you, how it has to do with your heavenly realm that you are heading toward one day, right? But on the other side, it's about now, what are you supposed to do now that you're saved? While you're here in this world, while you remain in this flesh, what does God expect from you? Um, when we were studying the subject of covenant, we saw that in covenant, to become one, right? But once you become a covenant partner, what is your relationship then with that person after you've come into covenant? Wow. Do you think that also fits here? Yeah. So the subject then of covenant, although it's not mentioned, it really becomes clear that, that, that there's a heavy emphasis on it here as well. He is saying, you have been saved by grace, and now you're to walk in that, in that grace. Once you come to know the Lord, he forgives you of all your sins, and guess what? Not one work you do, good or bad, can ever change that. You are in Christ. But now that you are in Christ, you have a responsibility, a responsibility to love him, to walk with him, to be obedient to him, and according to Ephesians 2, to do these good works which were prepared for you. So God has a, has a design purpose in this, and he's saying about these qualities that are brought up. He's, he, why do you think he, in this context, chapter 3, why does he break it down into these two kinds of things, one that can be burned up and one that can't? That's just phrasing the question slightly different, but... Yes. Right. Right. Yeah, I, I can tell you, I, that particular verse has been, for me, something that has really uh, kind of had a personal um, application in my life because you can't shut me up. It is, it is compulsive, you know. I, could re, I can t give you countless times in my life where, you know, I, have, I had little congregational gatherings at the grocery store at the military commissary. We would stand in the aisle and keep things backed up while I was... You know, oh, but I, let me tell you about this, right? I'm teaching everywhere I go. That's Paul. He's saying, I have, and this is a subject that actually we are going to get into later, where he talks about the giftedness that comes from God and how he places that within you, again, by his spirit. In the same way he gave you the mind of Christ, he gave you the spirit of Christ, and he's giving you spiritual gifting. 
And that is something that he says, that, and in that gifting, in whichever place I place you in the body, and it's God's decision, he places you in the body where he desires to have you. And then he gifts you to do it, and he expects you to use it. So this is where we come into the next part in chapter 4, where we look about this, the subject of the stewardship and the servant, right? What, if God has given you a gift... A, spe a special gift, and you're going to come to see that you all have one, and I know you all know this, then do you feel that if, you're, if you've been given a responsibility, and it is a responsibility, then are you, do you feel an obligation in any way then to utilize it or to exercise it? Okay. I'm so glad you brought that up. I wish my friend, I was thinking about Pam Burnett. Do you remember, guys, when Pam Burnett used to be with us? And, she, and one of her testimonies was when she first came into precept, um, and I was at that time over at Woodlawn Baptist Church. And um, she was my student, and she was about to retire, retire as a teacher. And she was, in her mind, she had all these plans of, you know, lounging and traveling. And uh, not that she's not doing those things, but she really thought of retirement. You know, like, I'm done with serving at the church. I'm not going to be on all these committees. I'm not going to be teaching the choir. I'm not going to, whatever. I laugh because we did um, a passage. I think it must have been Second Timothy at that time. And we were studying about... Um, the, the servant's responsibility. And this came up, and she said it was in that lesson that she realized there is no retirement plan with God. And she just laughed about that. And to this day, when she and I talk, if, if it comes up at all, she goes, I remember when, and she tells me the whole story of how God did, and God gave it to her like three times, once in precept, once through something on the radio, and then once in her pastor's sermon at church. And so she said, yeah, there is no retirement plan with God. That is truly part of subliminally this message with these with the, this particular group of people. They have on the one side rent their congregation by co and these divisions that have come up. Then is what happens when you rent something and have to is that it makes it weaker. Rather, it's kind of like an army. You know how you, you've heard of many of the stories of different battles where. Um, uh, I always think about the Civil War, but you know how one general and another general, and they're all coming, they're campaigning together, and they're going to take a push to, to shove through and to take ground, right? But then they have to decide, well, should we divide up, and one come over here, and one come over here, and they're like, but we're weaker if we divide, right? If you're rent, you're weaker. Um, now, there might be some strategy in that, which is not my point, but my point is that was always the, the tug-of-war in their, in their planning was, do we divide? Because if we divide, we are weaker, right? And so in God's house, this was the issue. So we go back now to the, to the very beginning of what I was asking of you. When you title this book, I think that the, this... Uh, particular phrase here that we be made complete is is one of those that you can consider as a possible title and I don't know how you guys have titled yours at this point have you gotten to that place yet where you finally titled your book it's not something that Kay has really brought up again but we've been in it long enough now where you're probably starting to say how does what's the glue for this whole book right you're really quiet out there, guys. I don't. 
does that, okay, I'm going to let that be on hold, and I'm going to ask it again when we come back together. You got two weeks to figure it out. <laughs> okay, I want you, because I think that if you don't, if you don't have a nice, concise um, APEC that, you know, that addresses the whole picture, you cannot really grab hold as you move from one subject to the next subject to the next subject. There's got to be a thread that when you pull on that thread, everything's connected to it. And that thread is the thing that's going to help you see what is it that God really is showing us through this particular writing that Paul wrote to this body of Christ. The letter of Corinthians, how do you think it applies today? Does, do you think these issues actually apply yet today for us? Okay, I think it's pretty obvious. It's not like brain science kind of decision on that one. We definitely still have issues of divisions and quarrels amongst us. Do we have a problem in our church today of people who are remained infants? Even though, by the way, sometimes they've been Christians in faith for years, and yet they've never pushed forward, moved out of infancy and into a, adulthood, right? And so instead of being a part of the, of the um, cohesive body of Christ that pulls people together and makes us a unit, makes us a team under the headship, by the way, the headship of who? Jesus Christ. Everything goes back to him. It's in him, right? And so in Jesus Christ, we are one body. So why are we fighting against one another on every silly little issue? Why do we, why do we not stop to say, whoa, is this that important? Now, when we are not talking about doctrine problems. Because if there are doctrine problems, yes, you better stand up and you better quarrel. There needs to be a fight had. This is where Paul, for instance, he goes, when he was on his uh, journeys, he took a trip and went back to Jerusalem to meet with the council at Jerusalem to settle issues about problems that had to do with doctrine. Um, so those are not what we're talking about in this particular book. These are the petty things. And how was it posed to us in chapter 1? What was it that they were quarreling about? Yeah, in verse 12, I mean this, that each one of you is, is saying, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and I'm of Cephas, and I'm of Christ. Now, honestly, I personally can make this a doctrine, because <laughs> I'm going to say it's all about Jesus, and the others do not save. And actually, Paul, in a, in a subtle way, does it himself. He follows by saying, has Christ been divided? Um, has Paul, uh, Paul has not been crucified for you, has he? So he actually goes to the point of saying, you know, this really is a doctrinal point. I am not your savior. I was not, I did not um, baptize, you were not baptized into my name. You were baptized into the name of Jesus Christ. So we have a lot going on in this book. And when we leave this first segment, which we're closing up today, which is chapters one to four, and it's the segment called Divisions. Okay, we're going to be moving on to the next segment, which is, do you know? Do you remember? Judgments, that's right. Your duty to make judgments. Now, what's interesting to me is in this week's homework, we had, um, we had a section in there about judgments, didn't we? 
And this is going to kind of, I think, strengthen this, my point of what, I, what I'm trying to say to you here is, in our readings today, what does he say about judging others? Do not do this, right? But yet when you hit cha uh, chapter 5 and 6, what's he going to say? Why are you not judging? Shame on you, right? So now you, what do you have to then determine? What is the judgment we're talking about? What kind of judgment were they doing in chapters 1 through 4 that was a no-no, but in chapters 5 and 6 was a yes, yes. And by the way, if you're not, shame on you. And I will come, and I will take care of this. I've already judged them even before I've come. So it's very interesting how we make this switch. And you have, there are some subtleties in here. And I do think that the body of Christ, often I've heard this through, especially you know, in my youth, about, oh, don't judge. Don't be judgmental, right? Don't judge others. It's not nice, right? Well, is there a time and place to judge? And there absolutely is. So we're going to get into that when we get into our next segment division. But for today, we need to see what kind of judgment are we not to be doing in the body of Christ. Yes. Discerning about what's good and what's evil, right? Yes. Um, Leviticus was great on that. We, when we did our Leviticus study, the whole thing was God established his people as a people group, as a community, and he gave them these um, rules, so to speak, or these laws. And in there, one of them was this law about how to discern, and he told them exactly what to discern. And the imagery in it, again, it's all about the metaphoric imagery. What were they supposed to be learning by the things that they were doing in that? On a daily basis, they had to discern between the clean and the unclean and they had to make a decision will I obey God in this or will I not right and then when they didn't they were told what was the solution and what was their solution under the Old Testament yeah the shedding of the blood right which is why in all of Leviticus uh, blood is a holy a high holy article and it's only to be used for atonement period. That's why they couldn't eat it. That's why if they touched it, they became defiled. There were all these imageries that God gave to them in this. We're in a book that's loaded with these kinds of imageries. So let's slow down now and let's go, let's step into what we looked at this week and see what we can do uh, to try to cover some of this. We got so much. I'm not, I almost don't know where to go with some of this, but let's try, let's just start with chapter three. Tell me what your key words were in chapter three. Okay, tell me again. Okay, uh, that's dry. I hate it when I get dried out pens. <laughs> Let's see if this one's better. Okay. Okay, that's interesting that you picked foundation first. Um, how strong is foundation as far as a key word is concerned in chapter 3? What is the, how do you see foundations working as a, as a key word for the overall message? Okay. 
Right. Okay, it's very interesting. Where do you find the word foundations in chapter 3? 10 to 15. What does that tell you about that word foundations? There you go. So it is a subject within the bigger subject, right? Okay, so that was my point in bringing that up to you. I just wanted you to see how it fits. So foundation is one of the words. Okay, what else? Okay, and how do you, what are the synonyms in chapter? Very good. Okay, I got the jealousy and strife that it's basically under the headship of the subject divisions because it's how they were going about making divisions amongst them through jealousy and strife was resulting in divisions, okay? And what did you say more than that? I can't remember. No, they did. He was illustrated in verse okay. Four, right, exactly. Okay, very good. All right, other key words? Fleshly. Growth. Hmm, I didn't catch that one. That's, it's certainly a, a, um, an emphasis on what was, how they became fleshly was there was no growth, right? Okay, no spiritual growth, okay? Uh, you might want to put with growth then the subject then of infants, right? That they are infants and they're supposed to grow and they didn't. Very good, excellent. So did you guys find your contrast pretty easily in this particular chapter? How do you compare contrasts in this chapter to the last one? Well, how many buts were there in chapter th uh, two compared to three? Yeah, it was huge in, in chapter two. Chapter three, there's still quite a significant amount of them, but there weren't quite as many. I noticed that when I went to make my contrast, almost all of them kind of boiled back to one or two identical points, right, where there were tons of them in the previous chapter, okay, very good, I'm glad you did, okay, what other key words? Man or men. Man or men, okay, and so it could be tied with the fleshy part, men of flesh, right? Yeah, men. I, I didn't get that one, but I'll put it on here. Anyway, spiritual men. Okay. All right. There we go. Uh, that's the one I was hoping you'd catch on. Servants and fellow workers. How um, significant are the servants and fellow workers in Chapter 3? Okay. Exactly. When, when you look at um, the subject of fellow workers, he, he starts at um, verse 8, he talks about uh, uh, how each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor, right? So the subject labor can actually, or, and fellow workers and servants, they can almost be tied together. And then when you move on to 13, 
uh, through 15, it looks like you got a lot more of work, 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 or, or an it, which is referring to the work, right? So you see that quite heavily. So it seems like servants and fellow workers and the subject of the work itself is quite profound in here, okay? Yes, very good. And again, where is that found primarily? Yeah, it finds itself, it kind of lands itself in the, in the verses 18 to 23 area, correct? And the, there's another key word in that segment that you haven't picked up on yet. Okay, there of course is the word boast, yes, which has come up before, right? I'll add that in here. The temple of God. Okay, all right. When he's looking about, um, when he says in 21, so then, there's kind of that term of conclusion there, so then, let no one boast in men for what? All things, and all things what? Finish up the thought. Belong to. Okay, so in that, the word belong really pops up and it, what it seems to me like is the, the concept or the contrast between the wisdom and the foolishness that's brought up in the verses prior to it. Are, do, do you see them in any way relating to the fact that who you belong to seems to be a factor in this? Yeah, and all things belong to you. And then did you see the progression? All things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to you. Now, again, do you remember when we did, let's see if I can do it here, but he says all things belong to you, right? And you belong to Christ, correct? And Christ belongs to God. Isn't that an amazing thought? So what you see then again is kind of the same idea that we had last week with, with the idea of the mind of Christ, right? Being the spirit of God and how he also then gave us of his spirit and therefore what? We have the mind, uh, uh, sorry, I got it upside down. How does my mind do that? <laughs> I do not know. Okay, so here we see this imagery in this. So now when you consider that all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and God, Christ belongs to God, then what is that word, how strong does that word belongs to, belongs to, belongs to become for us? What is the imagery then in that? How does this imagery relate to your overall concept of being made complete? Think about it for five seconds. I think it's pretty simple. What has happened? Divisions. They've been rent, right? And now they're being made complete. How are they made complete? By understanding who you belong to. If, you, if all things belong to you, and, that, and when he's speaking about you in there, I think Kay even asked the question about, uh, at one point, was it in this chapter or the next, about is that a plural you or, or a singular you, right? Yeah. 
What do you think he's speaking about there? I don't have it on my observation worksheet. Why don't I? In ver yeah, in verse um, 21, yes. Does anybody have a, one of those word study books that they can look for that to see? Is that a plural you or a singular? Thank you. Okay, see, I have it in my notes too somewhere. Thank you. I s how come I didn't get that onto my observation worksheet? I don't know, and I didn't want to say it out loud until I, because I, I'm scrambling to try to remember. But it's the plural you. This is very interesting. So in this point, although it's also true that you individually belong to Christ, right? But here, what he's talking about is you, the collective body, who has been rent. He said you belong to Christ and you, Christ belongs to God and th therefore all things belong to you and so what he's done is he's taken this body of Christ who has been rent through these divisions and quarrels and now what has he done put them back together made them one what this makes me always think of is covenant it's cut when t you know to become one and we become one in Christ and I do think that we have a problem in the church seeing ourselves as one because we, co we come into our churches with these um, personalities, with skills, and with various giftings, and we kind of all run off on our own little activity, right? And what God is saying, yes, you can be out there doing your own activities. He's going to address that in chapter 12, but he's saying, do not forget this, that you are a unit and you belong to me, and you are all mine, and you're not enemies with one another. We are, we are a team. Yes? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's true. Oh, boy. That's a good imagery there. Thanks. <laughs> yes. Yes. Right. When you forget that you belong to God and that the whole point of all this is that it, it's not about me kind of a kind of a mindset. It's not about me individually. It's about us in the body of Christ, that we are together working towards a common goal. And if we will do that, if our, if our teams are not divided, we are stronger together. And if we can stay on the same page under the headship of Jesus Christ, which when Paul concludes at the end of chapter um, 4, he tells this group of people to do what? In verse 16. And then, and how does he then, um, uh, what is the right word, but how does he present that in a way that says, this is, I'm not turning this around about me, I'm not me, I'm not coming out of this and going over here and saying, follow me, right? Just like a father is an example to his children, 
Right. So he has not really done this, right, though? Because how does he follow it up? What, what does he say in verse 17 when he starts talking about Timothy? I'm going to send Timothy. He's also a beloved child of mine. I'm his father also. But he says he's going to show something. He's going to remind you about something. And what, and what is that? My ways which are in Christ. So he's now going, oops, okay, I'm back here with you guys. Right? So he's not isolating himself out by saying, follow me. He's saying, follow me in my ways which are in Christ Jesus. So he's bringing himself back into the, into the collective group as one of them, part of it, part of one of them. All right, now, so that's chapter 3. Let's go on and do chapter 4 as the same as well. What do you see for key words in chapter 4? I forgot to add belong up there. Make sure you get belong on there because it's a key word in that chapter. Okay, I love that one. Stewards. And then the other one? Wasn't the word servant in there? And servants. And I marked those in the same way because the, the concept was in this, although they're, they're distinctive in their definition, but they were speaking on the same subject. Okay. I heard somebody else give another one. Examine. I love that. That's very good. Now, when you see that word examine, does that have a positive or a negative comment, uh, connotation to it? That's right, negative. Because when they were examining, what were they doing? It was a critical examination. It was, a, it was to criticize and to divide, right? That was the result of that kind of examining. Are there times when God tells us that we are to examine ourselves, right? Or even to examine others? Absolutely. I, you know, I, you will know a tree by its fruit that requires examining the fruit that's on that tree to see what it is, right? So examining is not always bad, but in this context, the subject to examine has a negative to it, right? And as a matter of fact, because he actually emphatically says in verse 5, what? In 4-5. Yeah, so passing judgment can go in there with the word examine. Passing judgment. Okay, so those two words are basically synonymous in this particular passage. Okay? I'll say it again. Okay, and what verse are you in? Oh, yeah, I do remember the word appraisal. I remember that. Where was that? Yeah. I don't see it in, in 3, 4, and 5. Oh, in 2. That's why. I, okay, thank you. 
Yes, okay, good. A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Okay, and uh, then it goes on, but he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. So the, yes, that's the also the same word of examined um, to investigate, basically, but it's but in chapter 4, the, the concept, would, I don't know if they would be considered, I guess they are synonyms in and of themselves, but the application of them are totally different. In one case, he actually still shows a contrast, doesn't he? The one who can appraise and the one who really can't. And it's the one who has the mind of Christ who is capable, but the one without the mind of Christ really is not, right? Why is he not? Because what is he lacking? the mind of Christ. Since he doesn't have the mind of the Spirit of God, he, can't, he cannot appraise spiritual things when they're presented to him or, or uh, uh, come into his world, basically. His, his area. He's not able to look at them and appraise them because he does not have the Spirit. We, however, have the Spirit, and therefore we appraise all things. We're capable of appraising all things. All right, all right so stewards... Servants is one. Examine or passing judgment in chapter 4 is another key word. Arrogant is good. And I heard another one. I'm sorry. I missed it. Who else? To become. Okay. Become. I didn't get that one. And how does become fit in here, Lois? Oh, okay. Oh, there you go. Oh, that's interesting. So he's using that, though, then to draw you into the imagery of what he's showing in these, these uh, metaphoric pictures of who they are, correct? All right. In verse... Okay, but the power, yes, again, the po that word power. Um, he wants to find out, shall I not find out, uh, not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power, okay? And wh how does that fit into the message? Not really so much specifically in four, but in the bigger message of one through four, chapters one through four. Because has the power of God been brought up before? Yeah. And how was the power of God previously displayed to us? What is the power of God? Who is the power of God? Let's put it. It's Christ himself and Christ crucified, right? So it's the message of the cross. It's the gospel itself. It's Jesus himself. It's the work of God himself. That's the, the real power. And so if when he comes to them, he's going to look to examine what they are doing, right? So in, it, it's kind of interesting how he starts in chapter 3 talking about don't be judgmental. Don't be judging one another, right? Um, he said, don't examine each other. Stop passing judgment. But yet at the end, he's saying, I'm coming to examine what you guys are doing. <laughs> yeah? So again, there's that subtlety of, okay, why, why is it in one case okay to judgment and in another case not okay? And how do you think the body of Christ can get to a place where you know when it is okay and when it isn't okay for you to be judging one another? 
there you go. It, it all goes back to the maturity level, where you are in Christ, how much have you trained yourself up to be able to eat the meat of the word of God so that you can filter everything that's going on in your world, whatever it is, through that truth, which is your plumb line. It's your standard, right? It's, it's that plumb line that says, this is straight, this is right, this is good. And when you can filter it through that, then you're going to be able to appraise all things. All right, very good. Um, chapter four, I'm going to lead you into one, the word beloved and love. Right there at the end, you see it actually three times, quite spaced out nicely in 14, um, 17, and 21. He speaks of them as his beloved children, right? Also, Timothy, who is his beloved and faithful child. And then at the end, he closes it. So now, shall I come to you with a rod or with love? Now, I realize the, the beloved and loved are slightly different, but the concept there is the emotional uh, affection that he's feeling. That's what's being conveyed in, in all three points, okay? Um, arrogant, examined. What about the word trustworthy? Did anybody mark that one? You might want to. Do you think that trustworthy factors into the whole chapter in any way? If you, if you have to think about it for just a moment. See, in verse 2, he says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. Does he go on in the rest of the chapter to in any way display to you what a trustworthy steward really looks like and what, a, what one who is not being trustworthy is like? He definitely shows what is not, but does he also show one that is? Okay, so he, he, he suggests at the beginning of the chapter that there's a requirement for one who is a steward, right? And stewardship and servanthood seems to be something that he's emphasizing in this chapter to his congregation here. He's saying this is what we are called to, right? Uh, and he says, let a man regard us in this manner as stewards of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And in this, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. And then he goes on to explain how they were not being so. And he, that's all seen in 9 through 13. Then he follows it in four, 14 to 21, and he explains to them how he wants to exhort them to follow his example of trustworthiness as a steward. Isn't that interesting? So the word trustworthy starts out not looking like it's all that significant, but then it becomes more profound when you see how, it, how he starts with the statement about trustworthiness, but then he builds on that subject. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit. Let's do the, the infant and the arrogant and the faithful steward. Which one do you want to attack first? We can go either side, or maybe we'll go back and forth. So let's, let's just start with Paul 
and his trustworthiness. He, he says he, himself, Paul views himself as a steward and a servant. He views himself that way, and he actually says to them, I want you to consider me as this as well, right? A servant and a steward. And it's, there's more to it than that, but I'm going to stop right there. Okay, so tell me, when you did your word study on servant, what, how, what is a servant? How is he defined? Isn't that interesting? An under rower. I liked this one. The steward is an under rower. So here we have a ship. This is not going to be a very good one. But, okay, here's my little paddles in the water, right? And the visualization of this is quite profound when you just draw your little pictures, right? So you see he's, an, so who is it that, who is the under rower and what is it that he's, that you see visually here when you look at it this way. Yes. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's true. Well, <laughs> okay, you just took that whole imagery and totally made it negative. <laughs> yes. Very good. Now you brought it. You brought it really more to where I think Paul. Paul's point in the imagery is not that they are going to be the first to drown, <laughs> right? But it was a good picture, Lisa. I like it. But but the real. It's part of it is okay. And what else do you know about the one who's rowing? There you go. And who's very good? So for you and I, who's the captain? Jesus. We have Jesus up top. We are down below and we are rowing. And the concept there is the under rower. And in that imagery is the picture of um, one who is under the authority of another. It's a subordinate. Okay. And he is the manual task person. He's the one who labors. Does that sound like a familiar subject that's going to come up? Interesting that he uses this specific word. Did you know that the word servant in 4.1 is different from the one in 3.5? It's subtle. How many of you guys spotted that? What did you come up? Who said yeah? Care. Okay, tell me what you saw on that. What was the distinction? Well, they're different. Uh, <laughs> yes, totally different numbers. 12 one is 1249, uh, the, uh, the one that we're in in our chapter here is 5257, okay. Okay, did anyone else do word study on those differences? Do you have it, Brenda? Well, the 1249 was a minister. Okay, very good. Very good. Okay, I, let me see if I've got my thing here. Okay, so I have my visualizations. I, this is one of the things I love to do when I'm doing my homework. I get use clip arts. And so we have the ship that's being rowed by the subordinate, by the underling, by the one who's basically at the bottom of the bottom tool. And then we have the servant. He's the one who's like Johnny on the spot. He's, he, he, can be a, he can be a servant in a capacity of, 
of intimacy and relationship that's a little higher level than the subordinate. Um, one, though, the emphasis really is on the subordination, that you're underneath the subordination of someone else, where the other one, the word is bond servant. It's one who willingly serves. And so although they both are still a servant, there's a subtlety in the difference, and I think it's because of the way he makes a switch from one chapter from chapter 3 into chapter 4 of what his intention is in, in their concept about being a servant. Here he says it is, it is necessary for a, a servant, an a under rower, to be found what? Trustworthy. So then let's go on and look at that word steward. Because this is interesting how it switches. Oh, I, I already wrote it up there. Good. Okay, tell me what the key word for uh, study on steward was. Yeah, the manager or superintendent even, right? Um, did you notice or did your uh, definition give you some examples within the Christian family who those people might be? A treasurer? <laughs> An agent. I kind of like that. Fiscal. Fiscal. Well, which is the treasure, right? Yes. Yeah. Right. Right. So they seem to actually almost have an authority, although they're in subordination. So it's kind of like we're, we're blending two things. In one, in one case, you're just about the man, manual labor. It's the mindset of understanding you're under the authority of someone else, and you are just rowing. And it's hard physical labor. As a matter of fact, when Paul goes here in the next part, we're going to look to see where he talks about they toil. And that, that word definition of toil is hard labor, labor to exhaustion, right? That's the concept of that um, servant. But the steward is the one who is more of a, can be more of a managerial. So um, on the one hand, we're in subordination. On the other hand, we're kind of in charge, right? I mean, there's the, the t kind of a blending there of two things, not in charge of God, but in charge of what? what you have been entrusted with and you're to be found trustworthy in that uh brenda i found it interesting that mine said that it was generally a freed man a slave that had been re released from forced legal servitude so that kind of shows you the oh heart. and it also kind of ties in with bond servant though then that kind of almost makes the other one a little bit closer of, of blending both, and, and both are absolutely true. We are a bond servant, but we're also in servitude as a subordinate. Um, mine said, uh, manager, superintendent, one entrusted with the management of affairs of another. So in other words, if he's entrusted something to you, you are to manage it, you are to oversee it, you are to be trustworthy in that. And then it went on to say Christian teachers, bishops, and overseers were considered stewards. And that's, it, that's not an exhaustive list, but that just gives you an example of some within the household of faith. So within the household of faith, in the Christian body, the church, we also become stewards, not just servants, but stewards. So we're both, right? All right, so in that, then he talks about being a steward. A steward of what? Okay. 
Mysteries of God. Now tell me what you learned about the mysteries of God. What are the mysteries of God? This was day four on page 37, if you need to know where to go look in your homework. What did you learn about the mysteries of God? Okay, all right. Hidden from some, revealed to others. Now, we've covered something about that in our, in our First Corinthians uh, study so far, right? Are there some things hidden to some but revealed to others? There you go. They're foolishness to, to them, right? So we're back to, again, those who are going to uh, receive it or are going to come to understand these hidden things would be those who what? Have the mind of Christ, right? Okay. And um, let's see, that one is um, Luke, right? That was in Luke 8, 9, and 10. And it's mysteries about what? There you go, about the kingdom of God. Now that's pretty broad, right? What do, when you think of the kingdom of God, what all do you think of? Okay, Jesus. Jesus is, is the kingdom. He's the king of the kingdom of God, all right? Heaven. And some on earth too, right? All right. What is his kingdom? Who is his kingdom? us okay so it's kind of a it, it really isn't clearly defined at this point but it's kind of has seems to have a pretty broad possibility doesn't it when you're speaking about the mysteries of God at this point ah uh, thank you so much I, I didn't want to have to make you go there <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Now, I'm only going to put that one part of the verse in there. All, the, all that God has prepared for those who love him. And the rest of all of that you said is also true. <laughs> that's in 1 Corinthians 2.9. And it's a quote, by the way, from Isaiah uh, 64.4. This part is. And the other part was another quote. I can't remember if Job or I can't remember what the other one was. All right. So all that God has prepared for those who love him. So again, now you're back to, huh, could be the kingdom here on the earth, like even what, what is going on within the church itself today, but it can also be the kingdom that's yet to come, the heavenly kingdom, right? Could be even speaking of the millennial kingdom, right? I mean, so there's, there's quite a bit of possibilities in all that. All right, there's, okay, so that's kind of the broader picture. Now let's go, let's hone in a little bit more, some of the more specifics about the mysteries of God. Who is the mysteries of God? What about in 2 Timothy and um, first Col uh, Colossians 1.27? Okay, one of uh, the mysteries that was hidden before but has now been revealed is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I love that. 
That's Colossians 1.27. And the other in Timothy is Jesus Christ and what concerning him? It's the message of, of um, 1 Corinthians as well, where he says to only know this, Jesus Christ and him what? Him crucified. So in Timothy, it says the same thing. 2 Timothy 2, 2, Christ, uh, Jesus Christ risen from the dead. He goes to the other side. I like that part better. You know, on the one hand, it's, it's him crucified, but now it's him risen. So this, these are the mysteries of God. So what is the mysteries of God? That we are viewed uh, as servants, and that is in all kinds of capacities. And we're going to learn that later, more about that in, in um, spiritual gifting. But as a steward, it's of the mysteries of God. And that concerns then, basically it boils down to being the gospel, or the word of God itself, on the whole, right? Basically, anything God has told us about, about who we are, who he is, what he has in store for us, what, he, what, what his plans are, how he, what his agenda is, and that we are, he says he keeps no secrets from us, right? That he reveals all things to those who are his friends. Okay. All right, now let's go and look at the next part. Then let's look at Paul's example of being trustworthy. Okay, he says, um, starting in verse 4, actually, you can actually begin right there in verse 4 and 5. 3 and 4, he says, what does he do himself? What is his example as a trustworthy servant? Yes, and he says, and he opens it, for I am conscious of nothing, right? So what does that tell you about the trustworthy st uh, steward and servant? What has he done for himself, concerning himself? He seems to have a sobering reflection about who he is, right? He also actually, it's kind of subliminal, but there's this message in that that um, he could, he feels like he could examine himself. Now, this is not to say that you don't examine yourself, right? That God tells us in other places we are to examine ourselves. But what he's saying here is, I can't even really analyze my own work in God fully and capably because there certainly will be some prejudice, right? I will think I did a good job and I will think that all my motives were pure and that I really couldn't have worked any harder than I did and that, you know, it was, that I did a great job. But if someone else examines me, what? They might pick me apart and find all kinds of flaws in the way I do the exercise of my gifting, right? Or of my works. And so what he's saying is, I can't really even examine myself fairly, so I'm waiting for the judgment of God to come on that. Because really only God can examine the heart. See if he, and he says that. Um, in verse 4, but the one who examines me, me what? My heart is the Lord. Because he says in verse 5 then, uh, therefore don't go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose what? The motives of the heart. So he's saying, I can't even really check my own motives totally. I, and we should attempt to, on a regular basis, keeping ourselves 
before the Lord and saying, Lord, please, you know, let me do this purely for your glory and not for mine. And, you know, and, and I really pray that we all are doing that as we are serving God in whatever capacity that our, our real heart's desire is that it's purely unto God and for his glory. And if we're trying to do that, is that still sufficient according to what Paul says? Is that sufficient to have really examined myself? The answer is no. Because truly, I can still deceive myself, right? But it's interesting, previously said, follow me because uh, you can be, I can you Or he's going to say it, yeah. Yeah, he first says, I can't even examine myself, so I don't even know if I checked myself, you know. Yeah, so there seems to constantly be kind of a tension that has to be kept in balance with interpreting what his thoughts are in concerning it. So on the one hand, he's saying one thing, but on the other hand, it sounds like he's contradicting, but he's not. What you have to do is determine what it is that he's speaking about specifically. Oh, yeah, so there you're supposed to judge yourself rightly, exactly, so that we won't be, okay, so in that case, what is that 11 one talking about? Is that the one at the Lord's Supper, right? Okay, excuse me. So in in chapter 11 where he says, if we judge ourselves rightly, what is, well, I hate to go there. Let's let's skip that for now, but it was good. (laughs) It's going to take too much to explain, and I don't want to lose our time because we are short on time, so. Or, or the intent of the examine, because when you see them use this word, and he tells them, don't do it. So it's, an, it's, an, it's implying there's a negative there. Don't examine and stop passing judgment, because what is their judgment and what is their examination about? Okay, it's fleshly. It's certainly done fleshly, because we've seen them already where he's rebuked them, that they're still infants. And what is the result of their examining and their judging? Divisions and quarrels among them. So it's renting the body of Christ into pieces. It's not building it up. As a matter of fact, in spiritual gift study, the whole point to the spiritual God is is that it builds up the body of Christ. Right? So if if the opposite is occurring, then what you can know is they are not handling it correctly. Their examination is the negative kind, which is the superficial, the the kind which rends things in two, which destroys. By the way, that word destroy, did you notice that being also a key word? Um, Let's see, where is that one? It's back in um, 3 verses uh, 16 and 18, right? Did you all notice that as a key word in chapter 3? I'm going to add it up here. It's actually a key word in that, those two verses, which is a paragraph, 16 and 17. He says, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. You're a temple. You're a collective body. You are are unified. All things belong to you. You belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. There's a covenant oneness here. You've been given the mind of God and he says you're a unit and somebody's trying to destroy that. 
Does the, is that not the essence of what has gone on? Is that not the consequence then of their immaturity? It all stems back to what had they not gr- done? They had not grown up. They had not taken, what is the root of the problem? They are not, two things, there's basically two things that you might want to note. Two roots to the problem here in, in divisions in chapter one through four. The first, the first one is they have not grown up in their faith. That started the whole ball rolling here. If they, had, if they had received their faith and then grown in it, they would not be where they are right now in this church. And, and we are yet to see some of the most horrible things that are, that are going to be taking place. And trust me, those issues, as horrible as they are, are still going on today in our churches. And the problem with the church is so many of them have not grown up in their faith. They can't even correct one another and do it not through an examination and a passing of judgment. We're quick to run around and criticize people's work, but we're not very quick about judging people for sin, calling people on the carpet for holy living, right? Righteous thinking. So that's the first one. They've not grown up. That's in 3.1. But the second one is they're not keeping their eyes on who? on Jesus himself. They have rent the body into pieces. Some are following factions. They're following men. They're not really following God. And if they follow God, they wouldn't mind following men because they would realize the, the reality is, e- even as servants, how many people are in the bottom of that boat rowing? The whole congregation, right? If our boat represents a church, and below represents us rowing, and at the top is Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. We are all rowing. Guess who else is in the rowboat with us? Our pastors, our teachers, our, our deacons, our, our elders. We're all part of the rowing team. We're all doing our part. I, I used to always say, use a baseball analogy, because I used to play softball some. I was really bad at it, but... Um, you know, and I like the analogy because I played right field mostly. <laughs> I sit there and watch the butterflies, you know, um, and missed every ball that came my way. But you can't play a baseball game without the whole field being occupied, not effectively, right? You might have the best pitcher in the entire league, but you're going to lose every game if your outfielders stink and if they're not doing their part. Same thing is true with the church. We have to view ourselves as a team. And that we are all united together under one headship, not under factions. And it's not, and it's not just factions of people, but factions of ministries. It isn't my ministry against your ministry. We are in this together. You do your part. Let me do my part. We will, we will work together, and God will be glorified. Right? All right. So um, now we've... Oh, I wish we had more time. Let's, let's talk about... His example then is in three and four. Paul's example. His example of trustworthiness, right? Or of, uh, yeah. That's a long title, right? Okay, this is on page 40 on day five of your homework, if you want to look on that in case you need that. First of all, he keeps, he does keep a clear conscience. So he does evaluate himself, although he realizes the real evaluation must be from God. 
He understands his weakness. In other words, it's a sober reflection and a dependency on God in the way that he examines himself. Um, that's in four, three and four, and then also verse 10. Let's look at 4.10. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. Do you see how what he's saying is he is evaluating himself and recognizing really where he is. And you know, this kind of made me think, well, there's an, it kind of couples together with the next part of it, and that is to, to, he does not pass judgment on the ministry work of others. And I really do think that is what this is boiling down. What kind of judgment is this? It's about ministry work. They were looking at these different leaders like Apollos and Paul and saying, well, I really like him. Well, I really like him. And, and by doing it in the way that they were, they were rending things in two. They were dividing people and causing a division. Rather than seeing each one as doing a, their own designed work that has value and benefit for the body, he's, he, they weren't doing that. So he tells them, as a, as a faithful or trustworthy servant and steward, he does not pass judgment on the ministry work of others unless he sees sin, right? We're, we're going to look at that in our next division. He does not pass judgment. On the work of others. Unless there's an obvious sin indicator in this, which would change the conversation, but that's not what he's talking about here. I'm going to give you a couple of verses that you can look at, and that's in chapter 4, verse 5, where it's first mentioned, but then also if you back up into chapter 3, 13 to 15, you can see where he's saying that. Now, to not pass judgment, I looked this up. Did anybody else not passing judgment? Anyone want to share that insight? Okay, here's, here's by definition, here's what it means, and you can see how well this really makes his point. It's to pronounce an opinion concerning right and wrong and deeds or in, about deeds or words of others to censor them, to rule or govern them, or to preside over all with power of judicial decisions. And then I put a subnote in this. This is not speaking about judgment concerning sin. That we should do. And we will get into that starting with our next segment. But not passing judgment. But here's what came to my mind when I was looking at that. And this is the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 5, 5 to 7, one of the things that Jesus uh, does when he's speaking to the people here, let me just read some of this to you. I, I found a commentary that kind of does it succinctly. It talks about the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. This group was not doing any of those things. And he, Jesus says, um, the poor in spirit are those who consciously depend on God, not on themselves. They are poor inwardly, having no ability in themselves to please God. Those who mourn, they recognize their needs and they present them to the one who is able, right? Those who are meek uh, are truly humble and gentle and have a proper appreciation for their position. So in other words, and I don't mean position of underling, I mean position of you bear the name Jesus Christ. 
You have put on the, the robe of his name in covenant with him. You walk all over town with a great big tattoo on your forehead that says, I am a Christian. I don't bet you, but I have a sticker even on my car, right? That's, that talks about he died for me. I'll live for him. It says on my, my license plate. So when people see me driving around town, what am I doing? Are, are, do I, are they seeing me properly represent him? I hope so too. <laughs> Thanks, Beck. Thanks for the vote of confidence. <laughs> that was like, well, I hope so. Yes. I looked at passing judgment number twenty nine nineteen. It said to separate, to put asunder. I may have gone to. I often do. I go to the next comment to the next Greek study to the next Greek study. So I'm. This may have come from one of the others. But I just thought that went with the theme. Okay, go ahead. It does. Go ahead. Back to it. Say it again. Okay, so don't do that. Is that right? Do, does not pass judgment on the work of others to put it asunder and to, is that what you're saying, Susan? I'm trying to follow you. Well, I don't remember where I looked at, but um, look, that was, that looking at the passing of judgment. Yes, I have that one too. Twenty nine nineteen, that's what I have. Okay. To pronounce an opinion concerning right and wrong and deeds or words of others, to censor, to govern, to rule or to govern over, to preside over with power of judicial decision. So again, in a way, what you could say then is what he's saying of them, don't be passing judgment and shutting people down who are working for Christ. If they have a ministry, unless they're in sin, let them do the work that God has led them to do. God will place on his children's hearts works that need to be done within the body of Christ. Sometimes they're smaller, sometimes they're quite grand, doesn't matter. The work is the work, and each one is given their own thing to do, right? And their own part. And depending on your spiritual gifting, it will vary. And this is what, what Romans talks about when in Romans 12, where it talks about the spiritual gifts, how there's various um, manifestations of the Spirit in each of us. So what God is saying here to these people is they are rending things in two. They are putting them asunder. They are making critical kind of examination, which is critical to the point of causing quarrels and divisions, and it's tearing the church apart. And he's saying, stop doing that. A faithful servant keeps a clear conscience about his own self, but he also does not pass judgment on, on others. Okay, so that's that, my, that was my point there. Now let's move on and look at some of this other. We, I love, as you go through verses 8 to... Um, 13, there's quite a healthy list of things that he's, that basically you see a servant is willing to do. And we're just going to talk about them. I'm not going to write them for the sake of time. Okay. Tell me, what do you see in nine and 10? What is, what is he willing to do? To become a spectacle to the world. That's an interesting word, by the way, the spectacle. Do you may look that up? Like it was the last person brought in the games just to be 
Right, and w- and when you bring the gladiator in, in you bring him into a to an uh, an amphitheater like setting, and there's people all around, and they're watching. So you be- basically become center stage, right? That was the definition that I when I I, I thought I put it on this note, but obviously I didn't. Um, okay, tell me what does yours say? Yes. Okay, very good. So basically he's saying, I'm center stage for the world to look at me, and I am willing to do that. I am willing to be center stage. I am willing to be made a spectacle. And in this case, he's saying a spectacle in, in concerning what? For Christ's sake, right? So as long as what I am doing, they're looking at what I'm doing, but what they're really seeing is Christ and Christ in me. And that the mission of God and that the glory of God is being that which is put on display, then he is willing to do all that, right? He doesn't want to become a spectacle that people are looking at him. But in this divisions problem, do you think that could be part of the problem as well? Are there some of these divisions that were occurring where it was people trying to exalt themselves rather than Christ? Right, to know that there's a spiritual realm, there's an earthly realm, and you know, there's a couple of really cool verses that talk about the, how the angels observe and they look into these things and so forth, I think it's in Hebrews. Okay, yes, all right, so he says he's willing to become a spectacle to the world, right? And in 10, he is willing to be a fool for Christ's sake. So those are two more points that a faithful servant is willing to do. Um, in verse 12, He's willing to do what? Drop down to 412. Toil. I thought you said 12. Toil. Good. <laughs> they sound so much alike. <laughs> yes, to toil. And again, the definition of that? To work hard, to grow weary, to become exhausted at it. Would you, can you think of times in your ministry work for the Lord that you really have worked until you were just exhausted, but you knew you had a deadline or you knew you had a responsibility and no matter, no matter what, you were going to fulfill that work. You were going to own up to what you said you would do. Can you think, I, I know all of you in here, yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, every one of you, there are hours and hours put in to the work that you do for God, and you, and you spend it very sincerely and faithfully and trustworthy. Well, but that's just, that's because I'm an insane person, and that's normal for me, right? <laughs> yes, I'm insane, okay. All right, now, what about the uh, other things? What else do you see in there that he is? What are some other characteristics or qualities of a trustworthy one this is what we want to be we don't we could spend a lot of time looking at the infants and the arrogant but we don't really want to be like them right mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, where was the one where he talks about being forgiving, but it doesn't use the word forgiveness. 
when we are persecuted, we endure it, basically. Um, that's part of it. Um, yeah, when we are yeah when we are poorly clothed, we are roughly treated. We are homeless. We toil. Um, and so the idea that the, the concept of for, of being a forgiving person also in there, because if you think about working for the Lord, how often do you in your especially if you're out in in the world, the unsaved world in your ministry, um, if God has sent you among the heathen. <laughs> joking um but if he has sent you out there into the world how appreciative are they of your spiritual gifting all your toil all your hard work all your labor your trustworthiness in being faithful do they appreciate any of that not really so when they revile you it says that they revile you your response is to be forgiving right um i thought about john 15 18 does someone look that one up? Because I thought that one was really good. Because it gives you perspective. And I do think it's all about perspective for the faithful and the trustworthy. And if you're, if you're able to keep your perspective correct, then you will be able to endure the revilings and the hatred that comes from the world. Who spoke that? Yeah, who spoke that? Uh, yeah, I know. Who actually spoke that, Lois? <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> That's always the answer, right? <laughs> it's exactly right. Oh, it was it was Becky. I didn't know that. I have to add that into my Bible. Yes, it was the Lord. So Jesus himself said, if the world hates you, you can know this, that it has hated me before it hated you. When Jesus went out into the world and he ministered, he performed miracles and all these healings and he gave the word of truth to the people out there and many of them reviled many of them walked away right and yet what Jesus said to his disciples is just know this when you go into the world you are going to find sometimes people that will revile you but you know where it should not come from it should not come from within our own household girls and boys and that's talking to me too, right? We should not be criticizing and examining one another in a way that tears us down. It does not mean we can't help one another. It does not mean we can't give words of advice and wisdom. We should certainly do that. If it's expressed in love, that's not this word here. Where was it? Judgment. Uh, the examine and the passing of judgment. That is critical, which tears down. We can help one another and exhort one another. We can encourage one another. And yes, we can have opinions about how things should or should not be done, right? But you cannot be critical in it so that you tear down their work, which is why he says in chapter 3, let's go back to it again, chapter 3, 16 and 17. Can you see how important these little tiny verse is actually now? Where before did it seem like it was out of place? You're kind of like, what's that little verse in there for? Because it almost seemed like he took a, took a U-turn and changed subjects on you. But he really didn't. What he's saying, you, do you not know? Wow. By the way, that is a phrase you might want to mark. And it is going to come up again over and over and over in the book of First Corinthians. And although I haven't had time to really dig into it yet, I think there is a profound um, kind of point that's being made in that. It's like when you say to your children, don't you know better? That again speaks a thousand words to us, right? Don't you know better? 
he's saying to them here, don't you know that you are a temple of God? You, you collectively, you, the body of Christ, are the temple of God. Yes, you individually are a temple as well, but you collectively, and you're ripping apart the temple. And he says you are going to destroy him. For the, but if you do destroy, if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. Now that's not saying you're losing salvation. So we don't need to go there at all because we all know we have security in our faith. It's an assurance of salvation in covenant. But what he is talking about then, if he's talking about maybe destroying you, what is he speaking of? Well, in 1 Corinthians 11, if you go back to that passage again, Robert, for me, there, remember in 1 Corinthians 11 where he's talking to them about examining themselves, and then he gives them a warning about th three kinds of people. Do you, are you following my thinking yet? Do you know what I'm thinking about? About There are some who are weak, and some who are sick, and some who have fallen asleep. Can, can you find that verse in there, Robert? Is it, is it, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put, I know it's in there, right in there. It's right in there after he, he talks to them about, and he's talking about taking the Lord's Supper and examining themselves. So I thought it's probably right in there with that verse that you looked at about examining, verse 30. Okay, read that verse 30. Yes, I am. Have fallen asleep. Okay, so when he says some are weak and some are sick and some have fallen asleep, can you see how that verse actually fits in here with this chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? Don't you know that you're a temple of God? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. He's not saying I'm going to take your salvation, but what is he saying? That I could take your life. I could put you on a deathbed, I could put you on a sickbed, or I could just weaken your ministry work altogether. I could maybe even just remove your ministry work, right? I could just take that from you. So some are weak, or they're not effective. Do you remember when Paul says, I'm going to come to you and examine whether you're, what you are up to is in power, or if it's not? How, was that on four or three? Okay, um... Yeah, but I will come to you soon, and if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. And so God is going to examine you and I's work, and God is in heaven and sovereign over. He's watching over his church, and he is saying that if you are destroying the work of God, this is a strong warning to us as believers. We need to see ourselves unified in Jesus Christ as a body working together rowing hard, toiling together for the glory of God. And if we aren't doing that, if God finds us untrustworthy, there is a potential for judgment. And we're not speaking of loss of salvation, but we're speaking about the kind of judgment which is called discipline, the discipline of the Lord, okay? All right, now, so he says, you basically, the faith one is forgiving. He blesses, I think you said, Susan, blesses when reviled. I love the last couple of statements in verse 413. He gets pretty graphic here, right? I love it. It's like, woe is me, right? <laughs> it's an Eeyore statement. What does he say? 
the scum of the world and the dregs of all things. So that's what we are. And he says, it's okay. I'm willing to be, I'm willing to be reviled by others, I'm, but I'm going to bless them back because I'm not going to return evil, uh, evil for evil, but I'm going to return good for evil. Romans speaks of this as well. Heap upon them co- uh, uh, coals, right, when they revile or come against you. So scum is the most abject and dis, uh, despicable men, the refuse of the world. Dregs, they're basically garbage. They're worthless. Just throw them away. So he says, it's okay. If that's how the world wants to see me, that's, that's what I will be if that is what God calls me to. If that's where God takes me and that's the... Res- you know, when we're out there in ministry um, for God a- as the body of Christ, sometimes we're successful and sometimes we do fail. Success and failure does not always mean that the work was good or bad. So just, we have to also keep that in mind. Sometimes uh, failure, what does, it, what does God do with that in the economy of the big picture? If a, if a person goes out to spread the gospel, they preach the gospel, and they consider them scum of the world and the dregs of all things, what has been accomplished if that's who they went to? Jesus has still been been spoken, right? His word has been put out. What else? There you go. Some plant, some water, but it's it's he, God, who who gives the increase, who gives the growth. So we're not in charge of it. When we, I think it was a couple of weeks back, we looked, or it might have been even in another study. I've forgotten. They're all blending together. But in um, Ezekiel chapter 3, where the prophet, when the prophet goes out, he says, you are to go and to speak my word, and you're to speak it whether they listen or not. Now, you can take that same message and apply it to almost any ministry, whether it's successful or not. What is God holding you and I to? To be faithful and trustworthy and do it. If God calls you to do it, you are to do it. And you're to do it wholeheartedly as unto the Lord, right? Not unto men, which is what we're looking at here. And what's interesting is, do you remember the, the response of all of Ananias and others about Paul coming anyway to begin with? They're like, oh my gosh, don't you know he murders us? Yeah, he puts us in prison. Exactly. So we don't always know what the outcome is going to be, but we know that we are called, as Ezekiel 3 says, that we are to do it, whether they listen or not, whether it's successful even or not. We are, if God calls you to do it, you do it. There's a reason for it, and you may not see it right away. You may never know. It may simply be accountability before God when one day they stand before him. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. Excellent. So now, it's, whew, nice, nice segue. Very good. Okay. Now, I did not have time, and we only have five minutes. I did not have time to take you through the the chapters. I will send out mine. I know that's cheating, but I, I'm going to send it out for you anyway. You will have my outline. Now, remember, my outline and my titles are just mine. And if you disagree, just put your own in there. But if you 
if you see the flow of thought better after having had this discussion about each of these little pieces. And did you notice how even the whole homework was kind of this melding back and forth between mostly three and four, but also she took us all the way back into one and two also. So it, it seems like it, it becomes more apparent after you've done it how one through four really is one chapter. I mean, we call it a segment division, but it definitely could be in one chapter, right? But we see the subject of divisions come up, and, th and what is the answer? Let me just do this. What is the solution? Chapter one, what do you do? Just give me your titles for chapter one, because I think that's, what is the solution to these divisions that have come amongst them? There you go. The first thing they have to do is remember who they are to boast in. Not in men, but in the Lord, right? Who called them? Chapter 1, verse 31. Chapter 2. There you go. Let your faith rest on the power of God, the wisdom of God. It's not the wisdom of men or the power of men that saved you. It's God, right? So the wisdom and the power of God is going to be our solution to the problems of division, keeping your rest on your faith on that rather than on men, okay? Chapter 3, what are we going to do? Okay, it's men who's causing the growth in three, all right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's causing the growth, okay? So you focused on the growth quality in chapter three, which I can see where you did that because when you look at the, the faithful servant versus the unfaithful, then that could take you into that particular mindset. Anyone else for chapter three? Okay, say that again. Okay, Christ is the foundation, all right? Okay, good. Since God's mysteries were revealed to us. Right. Right. So chapter 3 is about him revealing these mysteries to us. Okay. Any others? We've, we've kind of hit like three different things already, right? All right. I'm just going to leave it there. So all those are good. None of them are wrong. It's a matter of you uh, finding the flow of thought and remembering what the author's purpose is, which is to resolve the problem of divisions. And how in chapter 3, on the whole, what is the major message of chapter 3 all about? That's kind of the question you have to ask for yourself. What is it that he's telling them not to do in chapter 3? Okay, and the, the immaturity they're walking is mere men, right? So he says, to basically, don't walk as mere men, but remember who you belong to. You belong to Christ. So if you remember that's your unity, then there won't be divisions, right? So that's another thought, too. Okay, now chapter 4, one last one. What does he want us to do? Chapter 4 is really pretty cool because if you think about it, has Paul been hitting them pretty hard? He's been kind of smack, as a daddy, he's been kind of spanking, yeah? 
He's been hitting him down a little bit. But what does he do at the, at the close of chapter 4? There you go. Be imitators of me or of my ways. And I liked the my ways one because it goes on to say my ways which are in Christ. Um, so you, I, I kind of tied it that way, which again brings us back under the headship of the one who unifies us. So I, I kind of went with that one. But that's exactly right. What you see in chapter 4 is he continues to say, look, I just want you to know we're all servants together in this. We're servants and stewards, and um, I don't want us to be arrogant one against the other in in verse 6 and 7, and then 8 to 13. So God has um, exhibited us as fools for Christ's sake, and we're just fine with that, right? But I want you to, as my beloved children, imitate me. Because you're, so he establishes, even in in the end of uh, verse 13, I think it is, or no, he starts in 14, where he says, I'm, I, want to, I don't want to shame you. I, he he kind of tempers everything that he said previously. He's, he's had all these harsh things to say to them at this point. And he's going to have a lot more. But he's tempering it now with a little love hug. You know, have you ever had children where you've been disciplining them? And at some point, you look them in the eye, and you can see you've hit home. And you pick them up and you give them a hug and you're saying, look, I love you. We, we, can, we can make this right. We're going to fix this problem that you have. Or we're going to change the behavior. And so this is what Paul really does. He says, I don't write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. All right.